Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about the Olympics. The Winter Olympics are set to start in a couple of weeks, and it's kind of an exciting time in the sense of international competition. You have that sort of spirit of nationalism and that nationalist pride and maybe you even know some of the olympians through personal experiences or you've seen them in something or you just like watching some of the events and it's kind of strange because maybe you don't watch those events at other times during the year but every four years it's exciting to watch some of these events and see how they play out so the olympics are coming to town actually they're coming to china but they're coming to town and it's kind of interesting and you're probably asking yourself why in the world is dave talking about the winter olympics on a disney podcast well, let me explain. 62 years ago, the Winter Olympics were held in Lake Tahoe out in California. And it was the first time that they were going to be nationally televised in the United States live. And in living color, if you had color televisions and black and white, if you didn't, but it was going to be right there in your living room and you were gonna see the opening ceremonies in many of the events. Prior to that, the Olympics were something that you would see only in newsreels. Now remember that uh, in the movies, you would go to see a movie at any point from the time the movie theaters opened until almost 1960. You would go into the movies and you would see the movie you wanted to see plus a package of other shorts that were on before the movie. And they would include like a Donald Duck cartoon, a Mickey Mouse cartoon, some other short movie. A lot of times it would have movie tone news. And Movie Tone News was this organization that actually produced sort of a newsreel that was five to ten minutes long that talked about international news of interest. A lot of times, as we headed into World War II, it talked about things that were happening in the war effort and, you know, sort of the, the nationalist pride sort of thing in that sense. But it was much more than that. It had a lot of different human interest type things in it. And when the Olympics would come around, they'd talk about the spirit of international competition and the Olympics. That's how you would learn about the Olympics. You might read about some of the events in the newspaper, but otherwise, that's how you consumed it. You knew that the Olympics were, were going on, and you'd hear about some spec spectacle that was happening. So, for example, Jesse Owens setting the world record in 1936 in front of Adolf Hitler, you would think to yourself, wow, that's really exciting. You'd see that, that happen, and there was a little voiceover that would tell you about some of the events and what was going on, and it was kind of interesting because you were learning about something you heard about Nazi Germany rising to power, and here was the Olympics, and here was a black man who was out there, and he was sticking it to the Fuhrer, if you will. So it was kind of interesting, and you, that's the way you'd consume the news, and you'd consume information about the Olympics. There was no spectacle to it. There was nothing to it. It didn't have that sort of gravitas where you felt like you needed to watch it, and there really was no way to watch it to that point. But when the Olympics were coming around for 1960, they were looking for a host city, and they 
contacted several different cities around the world to see who would be interested in hosting the Olympics. And somehow or other, quite by surprise, honestly, Squaw Valley, this little tiny town near Lake, Lake Tahoe, actually won the bid in 1955 or six to host the Olympics. Now, Squaw Valley was this little town. There, was, there weren't many people there. There was a little ski resort, but it wasn't much of anything. But they were going to host the Olympics in four years' time. And there was a lot of hype around that. The Olympics was coming to the United States. It hadn't been in the United States since uh, 1932, when the, both the winter and the summer games were in the United States. And the previous time before that was 1908. So there weren't a lot of Olympics in the United States. And not only that, as I mentioned, the idea was to have the Olympics broadcast for the first time. Because it was in the United States, why not make it a national broadcast and let people see some of the games, especially the opening and the closing ceremonies? The problem was, the opening and closing ceremonies were kind of staid and boring. Yeah, you had sort of a parade of nations where you had the athletes come in, and you had an opening speech by someone, usually the uh, person who, who was representing the home country, but that was about it. That was really all there was to it. There was no spectacle to it. So as the U.S. Olympic Committee and the Squaw Valley Resort tried to figure out what to do, they naturally turned right to Walt Disney. Just a couple of years before they got the bid to host the Olympics as they were thinking up what they were going to do in 1960, Walt Disney had opened Disneyland. Now, he had had a show on TV for some period of time called The Wonderful World of Disney. And they could see he was a great showman, and he really knew how to put on a show and make something that was a spectacle, that was much more interesting than just this thing that they were doing. They couldn't broadcast this very simple thing. They had to have pageantry. And so when they turned to Walt Disney, Walt said, I'd love to do it. Now, Walt had, it was a California guy through and through, loved California. So having it in Lake Tahoe was right up his alley. It kind of helped him to express his love of California in a way, to be able to represent and show what the Olympics was all about. So he put together a team of people. It included John Hench, it included Ron Miller, his son-in-law, and it included Art Linkletter, who had been the host of his opening ceremony at Disneyland. And those were the three key people who came up with what the spectacle was gonna look like, in addition to Walt Disney, of course. And there were some other Imagineers and other creative types who were involved with it, but those were the three key people who came up with everything that was going to be in the Olympics opening ceremony. And throughout the entirety of the two weeks the Olympics was going on, they would continue to provide entertainment and something that would be more of a spectacle so you could tune in at any night and see something that was going on in the Olympics and it was more exciting than the games themselves, these individual events. The events were interesting, but how do you make the whole thing compelling? So Walt Disney came up with the creative ideas. He's like, we need to have a pageant. We need to have colors. We need to have so sounds. We need to have music. We need to have speeches from people. We need to make it just like a Disneyland parade. And that's exactly what he did. John Hench created these giant sculptures. These, they look like ice sculptures, but they were really uh, made of some other materials. But they were these ice sculptures that stood over the Olympic Village. And they represented the different sports. There was a skier, and there was a bobsledder, and there was a skater, and there were other things. And they were like, I don't know, 30 feet tall or something. And they were just, you know, sort of imposing in a way. He had the flag of flags of all the nations around. He had the opening ceremony, ceremony came on. He played the International uh, Olympic theme, and he came up with that show, that piece that actually describes what California is all about. Now, when you think about the Olympics, what do you think of when you think of the opening ceremonies? There's always the, the parade of nations of everybody coming in, and then there's a host city presentation that's this show, that's this spectacle. Walt Disney was, is responsible for that. He's the guy who started that. Before that, there was nothing like it. 
So he put on a show and he actually showed what it was like in California and put on something that really expressed some emotion and was much more of a showmanship type thing than anyone had ever done or seen before with the Olympics. And the Olympics, of course, were a smashing success because for the first time, someone figured out how to package it and distribute it to the country. And it was really pretty amazing and it, it became something and that's why the Olympics are the way they are today in terms of what they look like and the spectacle that goes on with them. But it was really remarkable that Walt Disney took the time and the care to come up with something that was really kind of remarkable and interesting and something so unique that no one had ever seen before. Now, when you think about you know, his legacy and what he did there, you know, this, this little tiny town got transformed into an Olympic village. And not only was the Olympic Village now something interesting, he, came, he provided entertainment throughout the two weeks. He had movies shown every night, mostly Disney movies, of course. He had a whole bunch of other activities that were around so that the athletes were entertained throughout as well. And then in the nightly broadcasts, he had some influence in what the nightly broadcasts were doing so that they were more packaged, right? They were more interesting in a way. It wasn't just, hey, we're going to show this person you know, skating on the ice. We're going to show some other thing that makes it really compelling in a way. And it became more about the show and the package and the whole presentation more than the Olympic sport itself. Balloons, fireworks, yeah, they were all part of it. This was something that Walt had seen as something that would make it a spectacle. Let's put up the greatest show. Let's put on the fireworks. Let's make it compelling. Let's make people want to watch. Make it appointment television. People are gonna wanna see this. And that is why it was so successful. So when you think to yourself, what is it about the Olympics that interests me? Why do I watch? these games. What about them makes them compelling in some way? Remember that Walt Disney had a lot to do with that. Sure, the fact that it's international competition and like I said, you may know somebody or you may have the nationalist pride and you may be interested in the, in the uh, actual event, but would you watch that event any other time besides the Olympics? Did you watch any of the trials leading up to it? And the answer is probably not. But Walt Disney figured out how to make them compelling and make it interesting and make it about the great show. It's everything that you think about with Disney World, Disneyland, all of the things that Walt Disney did. This is what makes the whole thing so interesting. I, I just find that fascinating that he was responsible for what you think about when you think about the Olympics. That whole pageantry, the opening ceremonies, the flags coming in, the whole thing that they do there. That's all because of him. He's responsible for it. And I just, I think that's really cool in a way. Now, it's interesting, too, because Walt Disney, like I said, he loved California. He was a California guy through and through. And he knew about some of the ski resorts, and he had visited some of them. But after having worked with Lake Tahoe and figuring out that he, uh, this was really something interesting, and he was kind of fascinated by the whole story, and this is what it comes down to when you think about Disney's foray into the idea of having his own themed ski resort. It was going to be this Disney ski resort that was called the uh, Mineral King ski resort and the idea was really cool he had this idea for making something that was a theme ski resort that was going to have some disney characters there something like the country bears was one of the original plans for that you know, he had drawn up this idea they were up in the country they were up with the mountains the bears would be there so the country bears were going to be at this ski resort kind of entertaining guests the whole idea was to provide that level of entertainment that goes beyond just having uh, a ski resort you know, ski resorts are you know they're they're fun and they're great but why not make it an entertainment destination more than just a ski resort? 
Walt became fascinated by that idea, and that's how he came up with this idea for the Mineral King Ski Resort, because of his tie to the Olympics in this sense, where he had thought about how do I package this and make it interesting. It all kind of ties together again. And it really got Walt thinking about what else he could do. You know, if you think about, if you really think about Walt Disney and who he was and what motivated him and what made him interesting and compelling, he was an interesting guy because he knew how to put on a great show. He knew how to package things up. He knew how to make it fun and entertaining for people. And in doing so, he created all these different things. You know, Disneyland was one thing. Then it was on to this idea of the Mineral King Ski Resort. Then it was on to the idea for St. Louis. Then it was on to uh, Disney World in Florida. Then it was on to other things that he had in mind. He had that idea for the, uh, the, uh, the entirety of Epcot, where he had some idea of something more that he could do. The guy was a visionary. He could really see how to package things, sell them, and make them compelling in a way. And the Olympics are no exception to that. When he stepped into the Olympics, the Olympics were changed forever. Remember that when you're seeing the opening ceremony this time, sit and watch it and kind of look at it through the lens of, I'm looking at a Disney World parade or a Disneyland parade or a, you know, some spectacle, some stage show that they're doing. That's the reason that it is the way it is because Walt Disney had the influence over it. I'm just, I, I find Walt Disney to be a really complex and interesting person and the fact that the US Olympic Committee came to him. And remember, I've told stories in the past and I will, I'm sure I will tell stories in the future about how people came to Walt Disney and asked for his advice on things. Because he had the great gift of being able to sh uh, show things and put on a spectacle and do it right and make it interesting. So it was always, there was always those questions. Hey, how could you help us to do this? So people were always seeking an, an audience with him, if you will, to talk to him about those things. From the uh, 1967 uh, Expo uh, up in Montreal to this uh, the Olympics to other people coming in and saying, hey, we want to have you, your help with this. The World's Fair, for example. Everybody had some ideas and wanted Walt's guidance on how to do it right and how to do it well. And Walt had it figured out. You know, he had a gift. I, I don't think there's one in, a, one in a million people that have that gift, honestly. But he did. And he was able to parlay it into something really successful that we all still love today. I mean, the man's been dead for... 55 years and we still remember him fondly as being this great showman and really putting on some some great performances it's it's just remarkable when you think about it so there you go that's the story of the olympics and walt disney's connection to the winter olympic games and how they became to be something more than what they ever had been in the past they moved beyond that idea of just being something that you would package up and talk about in 10 minutes and that was a spectacle and it was broadcast in everyone's homes and they could watch it in real time and see the excitement and the drama that played out every night and kind of packaging it up in some way. So remember that when you watch the Olympics this time. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about Dred Scott. Now you're probably remembering, Dred Scott, I've heard that name before. Does it have something to do with the Supreme Court, maybe slavery? And the answer to both is yes. This was a landmark Supreme Court case involving an enslaved person who sued for his freedom. 
So in history, Dred Scott was a person. He was born into slavery in 1799 in Virginia. His parents had been enslaved. His ancestors had come over from Africa. He was sold to a man who moved to Huntsville, Alabama, where he used Dred Scott as a slave on his plantation. And then at some point, he decided to retire from farming and decided to sell Dred Scott. So Scott was sold to a surgeon in the U.S. Army called Dr. John Emerson. John Emerson moved around because he was in the Army, so he was in, lived in different locations. He wound up living in some of the new territories that had been acquired and were part of the Missouri Compromise. Now, the Missouri Compromise was so named because of these newly acquired territories that the United States had gotten, where they couldn't decide whether slavery was going to be legal there or not. So they made them free territories and essentially allowed for freedom for slaves in those territories. But there were a lot of people who weren't interested in that, so there was a lot of debate about whether the Missouri Compromise was the right thing or not. But in any case, Congress had passed that law for the Missouri Compromise to make this happen. Emerson moved around and took his slave, Dred Scott, with him. So they lived in places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, and other places. So it was kind of an interesting thing that Dred Scott wound up being in some of these free territories. Now, to this point, there had been a number of different cases involving people who had been enslaved, who had moved to free states, their owners had moved them to free states, and they sued and got their freedom because they had moved to free states. So Dred Scott had learned about this at some point in some way, and had decided that when his owner died, and I always hate using the word owner, it doesn't feel right, Dred Scott sued for his freedom because they had lived in some of these territories. And it was a really interesting case, and it was sort of landmark in a way because no one had ever tried this approach before. Along the way, there were successes and failures. He had won at one point, lost at another, won again, lost again. It was appealed several times and wound its way to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court heard the merits of the case, and there were several different uh, notions of what direction this might go. Now, as you might expect, given that this became a landmark case, it turned out that the Supreme Court ruled seven to two against Dred Scott. He was not going to be a free man. He was going to remain the property of Emerson's widow. The majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Roger Taney. Taney wrote, the question is simply this, can a Negro whose ancestors were imported into this country and sold as slaves become a member of the political community formed and brought into existence by the Constitution of the United States and as such be entitled to all the rights and privileges and immunities guaranteed by that instrument to, to its citizens? We think that black people are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to its citizens of the United States. On the contrary, they were at the time of America's founding considered as subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. It is difficult at this day to realize the state of public opinion in relation to that unfortunate race, which prevailed in the civilized and enlightened portions of the world at the time of the Declaration of Independence, and when the Constitution of the United States was framed and adopted, they had, for more than a century before, been regarded as beings of an inferior order, and so far inferior that they had no rights to which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. And as if that wasn't enough, Taney also included language that basically undercut the entirety of the Missouri Compromise, this congressional thing that was approved and signed into law 
What he said was, now, the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Upon these considerations, it is the opinion of the court that the act of Congress which prohibited a citizen from holding and owning property of this kind in the territory of the United States, north of 36 degrees north, 36 minutes latitude, that line mentioned therein, is not warranted by the Constitution and is therefore void. So essentially, he said that the Missouri Compromise was illegal and basically said that the entirety of the United States remained slave states. And it was up to each state to individually define whether they would be free states or not. This didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> this was a huge problem. This was probably the last straw that led to the division that led to the Civil War. There were a lot of factors going into the Civil War, but this particular argument, this particular ruling, came down as one of the seminal moments that really fomented the hate. The fact that the government had created the Missouri Compromise to make it work was kind of essential to the growth of the nation. But here the Supreme Court had undercut that notion. You realize that there were two justices who opposed the ruling. And those justices were Benjamin Robbins Curtis. Curtis pointed out that in five of the 13 states, black men could vote because they were legally citizens. And he had a very cogent argument that he presented, and it caused Taney to actually create another dozen or so pages in his ruling that kind of overrode that, that basically talked to that specifically. So it's kind of a weird thing that this whole thing became more about keeping people down than anything else. I would argue that Curtis is the guy who had the most enlightened viewpoint. He had the way of looking at the world where he thought about it in the future and said, you know, we are working toward this, let's get there. Now, the other dissenter was John McLean. McLean's dissent was that the argument was more a matter of taste than law, and really it should be up to individual states and individual territories to decide how to do it based on their current beliefs. So in the end, Taney wrote a 200-page majority opinion, and this opinion lasted as law through the Civil War and was only undercut when the 13th Amendment was adopted. The 13th Amendment holds that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And Congress shall have no power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So effectively, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. Now, it took much too long to get there, but it did get there eventually. Most scholars would argue that the Dred Scott ruling was a total miscarriage of justice and was the worst ruling that the Supreme Court has ever had, and led us down the path to the Civil War very directly. So that's the story of Dred Scott, and I just wanted to share it with you and let you think about it a little bit. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, 
one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.